Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Almost. Almost. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We come at last to the week that we've been building towards since Thanksgiving. That's sort of the way that it tends to feel for us. Uh, We are finally here. We're finally at the time to celebrate the birth of our Lord. And we're about to read Luke's account of that uh, together here in just a moment. Uh, But we'll go past that. And in fact, our focus this morning is going to start in verse 8, verses 8 through 20, as we're looking at the interactions between the shepherds and the angelic messengers, and then what happens uh, coming out of that. And what we're going to hear is the declaration of a message of hope. That's what the news of Jesus' birth represents for us. This is a message of hope to an otherwise hopeless people. I wonder if we're all thinking of ourselves in those terms even this morning, talking to one another in those terms, that we are indeed hopeless apart from the reality that we're celebrating uh, this week. Uh, it's, it's quite fitting for us, I think, that we in our culture celebrate the birth of Jesus when we do at the very end of a calendar year. It seems to me that this is the time of year when questions of hope come to us most often. This is when we are reflecting on a year's events. Uh, where, does, uh, the, where do the events of 2018 have my life pointed as I come into the start of a new year? Uh, endings, new beginnings. And this sort of reflection oftentimes has a great deal of effect on our hope. And it's fitting then, if that's the case, as we end a year, that this would be the time that we would reflect on the birth of the Lord Jesus. Um, The idea of hope, uh, that which we can sometimes struggle with at the end of the year, uh, the idea of hope is biblically what separates us from unbelievers in a very profound way. Uh, You may remember Peter's words in 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 15, when he tells us to uh, be ready to make a defense. Remember this command that he gives to us, and we think of that uh, in a number of ways, especially in terms of evangelism and apologetics, making a defense for the faith. But do you remember how he ends that statement? His command to us is to be ready to make a defense when asked for the reason, for the hope that is in us. This is the reality about us that he tells us to be expecting others to notice as a difference. And they come to us and ask questions about it. And he says, be ready to explain why there is a hope in you that is different from from the rest of the world. Hope sets us apart as Christians. And that's not to say that unbelievers walk around in a constant state of conscious hopelessness. We know that's not the case. But it is to say that, that apart from Christ, people are forced to fix their hope on unreliable things. Unreliable for a number of reasons, maybe because the object of their hope is temporary. So we know that that we can tend to place our hope in physical beauty, um, giftedness, success of our endeavors, things that are temporary by their nature. It may be that we fix our hope on unreliable objects because those objects are imperfect. How often do we fix our hope on the love and approval that someone else is able to give to us? 
And those people are imperfect and so uh, incapable of bearing that load, of being the object of someone else's hope. But outside of Christ, we have only unreliable objects to place our hope upon. And for that reason, Christians are unique. The source of that is that the Christian worldview places our hope, fixes it, on a past historical event, which is outside of my reach. It's outside of the reach of my circumstances. Now, you remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 where he names this hope. The hope that, w- that uh, the, the object of our hope is actually on the event of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul wrote there, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless because you are still in your sins. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Make no mistake, he says here, our hope rises and falls with the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. This morning, our focus is not on the resurrection itself, but our focus will be placed on that same hope springing out of the event of that Messiah's coming. So I'm going to read for us here in Luke chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 20 together, pray, and then we'll walk through the account uh, beginning in verse 8. And that's what I'd like us to do is really just experience the story of the shepherds with the angels and and on. Uh, Walk through that together and stop at points and notice some particular things. So with that in mind, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word? Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went up to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And please be seated. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer, asking for his blessing on our time in his word. Father, we, we do just that this morning. We, we recognize our constant, steady need for your spirit to be at work in us, that we might perceive spiritual truths. We are a people that are weak, that are prone to wander in our minds. We are a hard-hearted people by nature. But you are the God who softens hearts, who gives new hearts. You are the God who feeds his people faithfully with your word. And we thank you for that, Lord. We recognize our time this morning is just that. You have provided a time of feeding for us. Help us, Lord, to be eager for this that you are uh, so graciously providing. And we pray, Lord, that you would, uh, you would not just allow us to hear and remember, but also to, to meditate on the truths of Scripture, to be changed by them, we and our families. And we thank you for the honor and the privilege. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our time this morning in verses 8 through 20 can be divided into two sections. Uh, and this really focuses on the experience of the shepherds and looks at it from their point of view. So we'll see uh, in verses 8 through 14, the shepherds receiving a hopeful declaration. And then in verses 15 through 20, we will see the shepherds reacting to a hopeful declaration. If that's helpful for you to break it up in those parts, I think that will work well. Uh, starting, we'll look at back at verse 8. Uh, the section begins with a bit of a meanwhile here. Verses 1 through 7 has just told us what is going on with Mary and Joseph and their, uh, their travels. They're coming to the place where Jesus is to be born. And in verse 8, we learn that as those things are happening, there are, just outside of the city, a group of shepherds. It says they're in the same region. They're able to get there that night to confirm these things. Sometimes I have failed to realize just how close they were to all of these things as they were going on just outside of the town. Um, And they're doing what shepherds do at night. They have their flock out in the fields, and they're keeping watch by night. So this is a group of shepherds. Some of them are no doubt sleeping. At least one is staying awake as they take shifts through the night. Uh, And that's helpful to me to imagine their situation as verse 9 takes place. Verse 9 says that as that is going on, suddenly, without warning it would seem, an angel of the Lord is, is, uh, is, is in their midst. And it says the angel of the Lord appeared to them and, and I think this is what we're meant to notice in particular, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, you, I'm sure, like me, have had those instances of being awakened out of sleep by something. I remember I had a friend in the past who used to love to find someone who was sleeping on a couch or something like that, and he would get right up in their face and just scream, shriek. It was a very unfriendly thing for him to do. I, I don't imagine it probably compares to what, what uh, whichever poor shepherd is asleep at this moment uh, is experiencing Um, And we know what's coming next. What's coming next is fear. It's it's important for us to stop for a moment and to understand the source of this fear. Um, They are not seeing God here. They are seeing an angel of the Lord. 
But it, it goes out of its way to tell us that as they see this angel, this is an angel that has been in the presence of God. So as they see the angel, the glory of God is shining around them from night to the glory of God. Now, it's important for us to think about and to go to Scripture about because we have never seen this before. I've never experienced the sight of the glory of God before. I don't think that you have either. But the problem with thinking about an experience that we've never experienced is that it can be easy for us to just assume some things, to import what we think would be going on into the situation. So in this, I tend to have assumed that what is so frightening to them is that there's a flying creature beside them here. And I'm sure that there's something frightening about that. But I don't think that's what's scaring them the most. And I, I say that to you because of what we have seen in the Bible uh, take place every time that God's glory is put on display. So let's think for just a minute about what the Bible tells us about this experience um, when, it, when it happens. And you know it's happened at many points in Scripture. You think of Moses in Exodus 34. I'll read to you verses 29 and 30. You remember when he was on the mountain? Verse 29 says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So we have there another example of the glory of God on display that produces fear. We don't have any commentary, though, of exactly what they're afraid of. Uh, Let's keep looking at some other examples. Isaiah chapter 6 is another similar situation. Isaiah sees a vision of the glory of God. And this is more helpful because Isaiah speaks here. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6. At the sight of the glory of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now Isaiah's experience uh, lays out for us something that we all know to be true, and that is that sinful humanity has a deep sense of its own guilt. This is something that we bear as sinners. It's not always an awareness that's on the surface. In fact, often it's not on the surface because part of life as a sinful creature involves this constant effort to suppress this knowledge of my guilt. Uh, This is described for us in many places. Romans 1.18 lays out this this uh, pattern for us of our attempted suppression of the knowledge of our guilt. But we find that knowledge to be a very buoyant thing, don't we? We suppress it here, and it pops up above surface here, and we work to suppress it here. And this is a pretty good illustration of what unbelieving life is like, a life of attempted self-justification as we push the knowledge of our guilt under the surface. Again, I've I've never experienced the sight of the glory of God, but apparently there's something that happens when God's glory is on display in front of a sinful person. Apparently what happens happens is that that sight immediately arrests that attempt at self-justification. Immediately the knowledge of our guilt is 
there on the surface, unable to be pushed down again. And suddenly I'm forced to see my own guilt before God in the same sight as the perfect holiness of this God. And the distinction between those two things has only one result in a human being, and that is terror. This is what these shepherds This is what these shepherds are experiencing. They are terrified. And they're not just terrified because there's a flying creature beside them. They are in the presence of the glory of God. And their sin is just laid bare before this God. You remember what Peter did when he was in the boat with Jesus and he realized who he was with. He fell down immediately and he said, depart from me. Not because he didn't want Jesus near, but because he suddenly realized this. And he knew he had no business being anywhere near. He was not worthy because of his sinfulness. This is why the first words of the angel have to be the words, fear not. Fear not. Because these are men that terror has gripped. And that terror is good and proper in itself. It's a result of a right self-estimation. What the shepherds don't understand yet, though, is that this angel has come with the very news, in fact, the only news, that could mitigate this fear of the glory of God. Look down there again. Do you see what the third word is from the angel? Fear not for. See, there's a reason that they don't need to be afraid right now. And it's because of this news that the angel is about to lay out for them. Verse 10, fear not for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. At last, God has brought His promises, awaited for so long. He has brought His promises to fruition. His promise is to send a Savior to save His people from the guilt of their sins. Think of how long these promises have been awaited, the, 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 the passing of them. Genesis 3, all the way back in the garden, this promise, one will come out of Eve's line, and that one will defeat our enemy. When? How long? 2 Samuel 7, a king is going to come. He's going to come out of David's line, and that king is going to be given a peaceful reign without end. And still they wait. Isaiah 53, there's going to come one who is going to bear our griefs and our sorrows in his person. He's going to be pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord is going to cause our iniquities to fall on Him instead of on us. And we wait. And these shepherds are hearing the revelation that has been awaited for thousands of years. These Old Testament promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. And they get to be the first ones outside of His parents to learn that He's here. He's here. The angel sends them away in verse 12 with the sign to search for. Once you go into the city of David, you'll know you found the fulfillment of these promises when you come to a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths 
and the sign cannot end there. Bethlehem is not a big city, but doubtless when they go into Bethlehem, they will find many babies wrapped in swaddling cloths, but they'll only find one baby being laid in a feeding trough of an animal. That's the sign that they're to look for. We love the word manger. Think about it. They're, they're hearing this. You'll know when you found him because you'll find a baby being laid down in the feeding trough of an animal. That's how you can tell that God's promises have come. From the beginning, his defining feature was that of lowliness and humility. We're not told the reaction of the shepherds. I wonder if they were discussing that as they walked into Bethlehem. They had to have been uh, pondering that reality. And I just love what happens next here. Uh, I, I have wondered if we don't get a bit of a glimpse into the emotional life of angels and what, what happens next. That, that may be a bit of a speculation, but look at what happens here. Uh, the message is delivered. They've, this angel has been in God's presence, commissioned to come and bring a message to a group of shepherds. And that angel comes and delivers the message And it's finished. And it seems as if all of the angelic self-control has been spent then. Because immediately the angel breaks out into singing. And now it's not just one angel. It's a multitude of angels. They've been there, but they've been withholding their presence. This message is important. Pay attention to me. No distractions. Look me in the eyes. Don't miss it. I've I've been sent for this very crucial message. But now that it's there, they don't need to hide anymore. So they're out in the open, and they're singing along with him. They are proclaiming these incredible truths. I just can't help but wonder if this is not a picture into their emotional state. It's an interesting thing for me to think about. I like to speculate sometimes in my, in my wonderings of these sorts of things. And it is it, what appears is a multitudinous heavenly army. You realize that's what the word host means. It's the word stratia. You hear the word strategy there. This is an army that has been sent to deliver this message. And the irony has not been lost uh, on many commentators, this notion that it's an army coming to bring this declaration of peace. It reinforces to me the, the, the notion of the incarnation as an invasion force into hostile land. Christ has come to be born to conquer the enemy through his death. And the the army that is accompanying him is declaring, now that he's here, peace. Peace. And they shout out praises to God as a result. Uh, We need to slow down a bit, though, coming into verse 14 and pay very close attention to just what they say because their message of peace on earth is specific. And it's specific in a way that is very instructive to us. Look at verse 14 and hear the declaration and the song of these angels. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now understand that this is not a general song of praise to God. This is a song that specifically tells of the results of the birth of Jesus. So according to this song, there are two results of Jesus' birth. Uh, In heaven, glory is being given to God. And on earth, peace is being brought to men. These are the two results of the birth of this baby. And the news that they are announcing does represent that for us, exactly that, an assurance of peace. 
There are many events that happen in our lives that bring peace to us, peace of various sorts. I remember around this time of year, for, for several years in my life, I would have just finished a week of finals. And I remember, it's not been so long ago that I don't remember the feeling of that last sentence on that last essay. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a real source of peace right then. But it was not worthy of angelic song. No angel ever sang a song about the time when Blake finished his finals. Not once. It was, it was peace. But it wasn't worthy of that, of that kind of singing. This event is worthy of angelic song. And it's worthy because of the specific kind of peace that is being brought as Jesus invades this earth and is born. One commentator wrote about this peace, and I appreciated what he said, speaking of the word here. He says, Here, however, more than the cessation of strife is meant, and the word is used to indicate the full sum of the blessings associated with the coming of the Messiah. He brings, listen to this, he brings... He brings a new situation of peace between God and men in which his blessings can be communicated to them. Peace is thus tantamount to salvation. This is no small peace that elicits song and celebration from these angels. But here's where the song gets specific. Do you notice that it does not declare peace for all the world? Rather, it says, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, that's a very specific, I'm reading that out of the English Standard Version. Your Bible might put that differently. It's just been a phrase that has puzzled uh, translators for a while because it is an expression. It's a, it's a, it is a um, uh, put into Greek of an expression in a different language. And that's, that's a hard kind of a thing to do. And so it's puzzled us for a while. What exactly does he mean? But when we uncovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, we saw this very phrase used in a number of other places that confirmed what many had long thought uh, to to be the case here. Um, And and that is that uh, the phrase literally means those upon whom God's will or favor rests. That's different from from some other translations. Yours might say um, goodwill towards men which has a, has a general tone. Yours might say, peace toward men of goodwill, which think about the emphasis there. That, that puts the emphasis on, on a particular kind of person. Peace toward men of goodwill. I'm spending a couple of minutes kind of laying some of this out because it's important for us to really understand the point that the angel is making. It's a matter of, of focus. The focus of his words and declaration of peace is on God rather than on men. Peace is being declared, and the receipt of that peace depends on God, not on us. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So let's put some of this together then. The angel's song is a song about the results of Jesus' birth. And for us, the result is that for men upon whom God's favor rests, there is now peace with God. What's the obvious question coming from that? Well, who, who are those upon whom God's favor rests? I want to know who that is. Does the Bible tell me anything about 
that group of people and what they will look like, how they will be uh, characterized or defined. Uh, who are those upon whom God's favor rests? And God's word does speak to this. Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 5. We'll read just verse 1. And I'm going to read this because of the, uh, the stark uh, similarities here. Notice some of the very same ideas that we're, we're talking about in Luke 2 showing up in this verse. Romans 5, 1. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see in that verse that the very same peace with God is being described here? And you also see that the angel's song is confirmed. Uh, That peace with God comes how? It comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there that is. But notice that above that, Paul declares the means of entering that peace. He says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is such a source of gratitude for us this Christmas season. If you know the peace with God that comes from trusting in the person and work of Jesus, so that you know you are at peace with God, Romans 5, you know that there's no, no condemnation for you any longer, Romans 8, if that's your peace, the angel's song here reveals the mode in which that happened. Here's what happened. A good, kind Gracious God chose to look favorably upon you. That's what happened. You think about the moment of your conversion, if you're in Christ this morning. What did you experience? You experienced a number of things when God saved you. You experienced it as a moment of conviction over your sin. A choice to trust in the work of another instead of your own work. A real decision to trust Him to rest in God's promises concerning Jesus. You experienced those things legitimately. But now as you walk and as you learn, you look back and you know that this is true. That what was happening underneath all of it was that you were being a recipient of God's undeserved favor. That's what was happening. What do we say to such a reality as that? 2,000 plus years ago, these shepherds become the first to hear this proclamation of hope post-birth of Jesus. A hope that is offered to the world, to all the world, but that is realized only for those on whom God wills to, ca- to, to, to cast his favor. And he tells us who that is. It is those who are trusting in the free gift of his son. He manifests his favor by gifting faith in us. Faith to trust in his son as dying in our place for our sins. This is all that we hear and, and see in the words and the songs of the angel as the shepherds are receiving this hopeful declaration. But look with me at verse 15 as we shift to uh, thinking about their reaction to this hopeful declaration. Let me read beginning in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven... The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And stop there. So this declaration of hope is verified as the shepherds go to where they were directed. They go to Bethlehem, to the city of David. And they find him just as it was told them. However perplexed they may have been at the notion of this baby being laid where he was told, where they were told to find him, that's exactly how it is when they walk in the door. They explain in verse 17 why they've come, how it is that they have come. And in verse 18, the news has the effect that we would expect it to have. Everyone who hears this is amazed. It says they wondered at it. They were amazed at it. I was thinking about that, and just, it just brought the thought to my mind of how, how, ama- how incredible it is, uh, the truths we're able to hold and lose amazement with at the same time. That doesn't mean we stop believing them. We can believe something and lose amazement with it. We know that we're celebrating this week the time when the eternal God put on flesh and underwent the event of childbirth and came into this world as a baby. That's what we're celebrating. Are you properly amazed at that as you celebrate this week? I don't think so. I'm not. Um, We're very good at believing something incredible and coming to lose our amazement at it. And it it seems to me when the Lord does his kind work in us uh, through sanctification, those can represent some of the more painful moments in our lives, right? As God is maybe bringing us through difficult trials, through loss, through suffering. He's exposing our weaknesses. He's exposing our um, helplessness. He's exposing the depth of our sin that's so much more than I had thought that it was. Those are painful times. Um, But there's one thing that we need to see in the midst of those humble moments that I think fits here. And that is that as he brings us through those things, do you understand, he, he, one thing he's doing always is he's allowing you the opportunity to stay amazed at one foundational reality. And that is that God looks upon sinners, even like me, and chooses to love and extend mercy. I can imagine that if, if the sanctification process were not a continuous process, that too could become something that I begin to believe and stop being amazed at. But it's just hard to, be, uh, to lose amazement at God's love for me if I continue to see my unworthiness more and more and more. And so that's a very kind thing that he's doing for us in those moments. He is allowing us to never lose our amazement at this spiritual truth that underlies everything else that we experience, and that is that God would choose to love me in a committed way that will finish what it starts. He knew me to be this before he chose to love me. These are amazing things that we must never lose our amazement at. Well, those who are listening to the shepherds here are said to have been amazed by what they're hearing in verse 18. 
Do you notice, though, between 18 and 19, that there's a, a contrast there between their reaction and Mary's reaction? Do you see that? Verse 19 begins with the word, but. They wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. There's something in the way that she reacts to this angelic revelation that is uh, different in that it's, it's more. Uh, they were amazed, but she treasured up these things, pondering them. I don't think it's saying that she wasn't amazed. Just down in this chapter, in verse 33, she and Joseph are both amazed at the prophecies that are given concerning their son. She's very capable of being amazed. I think she's amazed here as well. Uh, but Luke is, con- is consciously pointing something out to us about Mary, and that is that her reaction goes beyond amazement so that she begins chewing on these things. She begins internalizing them, uh, the words and the events, in such a way that she, she will then continue to let them filter how she views things going forward. So it's not a, 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 an amazement in time and then a moving on. It's a realization, a shock that has ongoing effects in the way she processes what happens to her going forward. Now, I ask you, as you read that, does it seem like Luke is pointing that out about Mary as a criticism or as a praise? Is this a good thing or a bad thing that she is pondering these things, treasuring them up in her heart? This is a good thing, right? This is not a criticism of Mary. So Luke goes out of his way to point this out about her, and it is pointed out in a praiseworthy way. If those things are the case, I would suggest to you that what we see here is an implicit exhortation to us. We're in that time of the year where we are pondering the things that she was just hearing, that were just revealed to her. If this is the time of year that we do that, that we designate especially to meditate on the birth of Jesus... It seems to me God would have us handle ourselves during this time in such a way that it continues to affect our thinking and our living as we go past the holiday. So I would just ask you, uh, what sort of intentionality have you set up for yourself, for your family, uh, to, to work that this would be the case, that this opportunity that we get every year to be brought back to this event in our thinking would become fodder for continued thought and conversation, and reflection as a new year begins. It seems that in Mary we have an example that we are, to, we are to ponder these things and treasure them up and let them affect our living as we go past, uh, past December. Look with me finally at, at verse 20. What, what happens here to end the story of the shepherds? Well, it says, the shepherds returned. Often we'll ask the sort of question, how can that happen? How do you return back to the group of sheep and get back to all of the things that go along with that after something like this takes place? You ever thought about that? Um, I hope we all understand in here, all believers in here understand that this is what has happened to every one of us. This has happened to you. Uh, You have met with God by faith. You have had otherworldly Truths and realities revealed to you that you received and trusted to be true. This happened to you when God saved you. And what happened to you the next day then? 
the same thing. You got up and went to work, or you went to school. You continued with, with your life. Now, that's part of what being faithful to the life God has given us uh, has to look like. But as they return, uh, they demonstrate something that is true of believers at all times, and that is that they were never the same again, were they? They evidence, as they leave, a genuine reception of this grace and this truth because they go glorifying God and praising Him for all that they had heard and seen. They know that they are gifted men, having gotten to witness the coming and, and, uh, and arrival of the Savior of all of God's people. They are gifted by that sight. You know, the Bible speaks in very similar terms of us as well who haven't seen him. We who have been given spiritual eyes to see Christ and have believed as a result. In John chapter 20, Jesus is speaking to Thomas, doubting Thomas. Wouldn't going to believe unless he could stick his hand in Jesus' side. And Jesus is there before him in John 20. And Thomas believes. And Jesus speaks of us. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He calls us blessed as well. Last place I'll have you turn here. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1 for just a moment. And find verse 8. 1 Peter 1, 8. Another place where um, those such as we are spoken of. And I want you to notice how we are characterized here by Peter. Peter's writing to a group of Christians who were not there. He's writing to Asia Minor, so they did not see all of these things happen when Jesus was here. But God has brought the gospel to them, and they've believed. Listen to how they're characterized. Verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You see how they're characterized, how we are characterized? He's writing to a group of Christians, just look above that, who are in the midst of a great deal of suffering. They're in the very moments, in other words, where the hope of the world is thrown into uncertainty. We are at a time of year where hope is often challenged and thrown into uncertainty as we consider our circumstances. It's always our circumstances that threaten to throw our hope into uncertainty. But Christians are defined by a unique hope. So that even in the midst of their difficulty, how does he say they and we are characterized? We love Jesus. Even without having seen him, we love him. We fix our trust on Jesus. We believe in him, it says of us. And what's the result of that sight, that love, that belief? The result is that we greatly rejoice. We are characterized by a life of great rejoicing. How greatly? He picks two words. We rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and joy that is glorious. That's the joy that characterizes God's children. Because we realize what he says at the end, that eternal rescue comes not out of uh, perfect work or labor, but out of faith, faith in the finished work of Christ. 1 John 5, 4 says that it's our faith that is the victory by which we overcome the world. 
It's our faith. And so their lives are characterized by a hope that fills the present with love and joy. I would ask you again as we move toward closing, what, what does the end of this year look like for you? Start of another year. What, is, what does all of this look like in your thought life, in, in, in the inner uh, person? How are you doing as we finish out the year? Now, what we hear here in this angel's message is that the answer to that question does not rest on the circumstances you find yourself in at the moment. Those, those circumstances rest in the hands of a good and sovereign God who loves you. That's where those rest. The answer to the hope question rests in only one place. That is the answer to the question, did Jesus die? And did he rise again? We'll end this morning with the reality that it's described in Galatians 2.20. Let me just read this to you. You don't need to turn there. But uh, are you walking in this reality? This is the question to end with. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a song that's sometimes sung around this time of year. Part of it goes like this. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no... Let me start that again. Let's see here. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house, and in vain its builders strive. That's where we'll be next week. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me, what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Oh, that those precious truths would shape and direct our hope right now and going on. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the many, many ways that you work in our lives to humble us and to bring us low. Because it is only as humble people that we can say a thing like that. It's our pride, our self-centeredness that keeps us from that blessed place where we can truly rest. Where we can say, should nothing of our efforts stand, his rule and reign will ever sing. Oh, Father, there is such rest that you offer us in your gospel. Such rest for a people that can recognize their lowliness and their need to the extent that they're willing to just bow. They're willing to content themselves as being someone made for someone else's glory and not their own. Lord, we ask that you would humble us, that you would make us more and more a people of a contrite spirit, lowly, 
bowing before your word, trembling before you. Because it's only there that we can see the beauty of what you have done and praise you for the perfection of the work of Jesus rather than thinking that we have something more to offer in addition. Thank you, God. Thank you for the ways that you show us those things. Thank you for the peace and the mercy that is ours in Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to rest in that today and this week, and not just to rest in it, but to glory in it. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our benediction this morning? Out of Isaiah chapter 9. People who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. May we rest in the light of God's countenance as he looks favorably upon his children. Amen. You are dismissed.